Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Lindsay Fonseca, an actor you may remember from everything from Nikita and the Kick-Ass movies to Big Love and Marvel's Agent Carter, and of course from the framing device of How I Met Your Mother. She's currently starring opposite Josh Peck and some very nice dogs in the Disney Plus series Turner and Hooch, which drops its season finale this Wednesday, October 6th. Lindsay picked Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, the 1997 comedy about two lifelong best friends, played by Mira Sorvino and Lisa Kudrow, whose looming reunion becomes a wake-up call to the fact that they haven't achieved much of anything. That's the kind of thing that might lead some people to reevaluate their life choices. Instead, Romy and Michelle decide to pretend they've made great choices all along, returning to confront their old rivals and some old flames as fantastically successful career ladies. Using Robin Schiff's eccentric but emotionally consistent screenplay as their foundation, and supported by a crackling cast that includes Janine Garofalo, Alan Cumming, and Julia Campbell, Sorvina and Kudrow rip into every comic opportunity, and director David Merkin is there to make sense of it all. This could have been a fun little trifle, but it's so much more. This is someone else's movie. You know, we have these moments in our youth, these like really sort of important sort of, I guess, cognitive leaps in our in our growing up phases. And that was one of them. I remember that movie so vividly, but I didn't, I was much younger than them. So I didn't watch it when it first came out in theaters. I watched it later, even though I thought it was a new movie. Um, but I remember watching this movie and Clueless, like a ride around the same time. Yeah. And, and for me, something about the humor in Romeo and Michelle that I got even more than Clueless, but they were both important films at that time. I was in middle school um, and I, I felt like I couldn't quite figure out my, I, you know, we're just young trying to figure out who we are. And I remember being sort of floating between the more nerdy or, or artistic, uh, you know, theater kids to the, like the popular girls and feeling like I loved things about both of these groups of girls and feeling lost and, and I just felt like this movie was about these two women going back to high school and sort of reclaiming their their dignity of like who they are. I just loved the the concept. So, I mean, it means different things for me now than it did then, but sure. they're both equally important, you know? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. It, it is such a charming, weird, I mean, I saw it. At a, I think I saw it at a sneak preview, like the Wednesday night before it opened with an invited radio audience. Oh, and, fun. Yeah, and they, the room had no idea what to make of it, which was so great. It's It happens all the time with comedies where people who get a free ticket because they won a contest have no expectation and also maybe wouldn't go see this thing if, right. it, was there, if it was a choice, but because it's free, they just showed up. And so right. you never really know how a comedy is going to play for an audience like that. And I remember moments where I was the only one laughing and really, was, yeah. Oh, it was the, uh, I just cut my, cut my foot before and my shoe is filling up with blood, which is just, just, she says it's just so deadpan, but my shoe is filling up with blood yeah. and then she just wobbles away. Just, and, oh, yeah. it's so good. It's a non sequitur. It's in character <laughs> and it's really yeah. funny. Like it's just pure absurdist comedy. Yeah. And, and the fact that, um, uh, I didn't realize at the time, I mean, I should have known because I watched The Simpsons religiously at the time, but that David Merkin, the, the director, got his start there, which explains everything about why it's basically a cartoon anyway. He yes. hasn't adjusted his sensibility, which is exactly what this material needs. 
100%. And to the point of even like when they go to the high school reunion and things start getting kind of weird, almost like the tone changes and people are floating out of limousines and you're like, wait a second, this movie just got even weirder. <laughs> and it, you know, it turns out to be a dream, but the idea that you go with it, you're like, oh, I guess this is where we're at now. People are just floating out of limousines. That's actually kind of fun because usually in a film, you know, when something's a dream, you're like, mm -hmm. there's no way that's happening, but because it's already so wacky. Okay. I guess we're floating out of limousines and we're just flying through the sky now. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's charming in the, in the way that it refuses to give anything. Yeah. Like it just, it's not like it's yeah. withholding, but but like Romeo and Michelle, it will not be anything other than itself. And and like the, the fun of watching Sorvino and Kudrow figure out ways to kind of, the, the whole thing is that they're trying to pretend that there's something they're not, but they're incapable of it because they just keep being themselves. And watching the yeah. actors play that, that was yeah. really fascinating to me. And it's the ultimate payoff when they go to the height, you know, the popular girl and they're like, you know what? We're sick of it. And it's like the old, like how many people dream about telling off the bully in school, telling off the popular girl, telling off whoever, and being like, I am me. And I don't need to be, I don't need to be you to be myself. And it, it's just like, it's very cathartic, you know, but also yeah. as a girl, I, I never had growing up like that best friend in that relationship was so, I loved the idea of, of those girls. And, and I remember being very envious of that, you know, working very young. I never went to high school. I was homeschooled on a soap opera with adults. Oh, so, of course. so there's something like very, um, just, I'm fascinated, like freaks and geeks and this, like certain things that tell these very truthful, well, I mean, I don't know how truthful Romy and Michelle is, but these, these high school experiences are fascinating to me. Cause it's like, I was going through all the same things developmentally. I just wasn't in a school setting. So it kind of like puts context to a lot of these things for me too, which is something else I really love about the film. Wow. So it, it never really occurred to me that, that people who grow up outside of that system will like, I can, I can tell you, I'm the age of the freaks and geeks characters. And that's a documentary. Everything in that is real. That right. depressingly yeah. you're, you know, it's good yes. that you didn't have to go through it, but the, <laughs> um, but the other stuff that, yeah, you're missing all the socialization and you're missing all the weird, awkward socialization where mm -hmm. if you're surrounded by adults, they're going to try to keep you from making their mistakes, right? Like they'll, they'll try to give you the best possible experience without actually acknowledging how horrible school is. And so you get these idealized versions where I mean, even Romeo and Michelle, they had a great time, even though they weren't happy because they had each other, right? Like that's the thread that the film keeps coming back to is this unbreakable, even when they're trying not to speak to each other, the indications yeah. are there, like they want to. And yeah. that's the kind of thing that, that's perfect about high school movies, the best friend thing. Like it's Ferris Bueller and Cameron and yes, all the yes. other, the people who make each other better and the people who fix each other's problems and the people who stand up for each other. And then Heather Mooney, who just waits <laughs> and stalks and scowls. And again, Janine Garofalo is perfectly cast in that part. Perfect. But there, I have so many questions about this movie. You know, it's like, <laughs> were these two, were these two act or three actresses, were all of the actors in this, they go in and audition in this way? Did they find this on the day? Was this being pushed upon them with the director to keep going further? And then they sort of brilliantly listened to the notes and went on. Like, you know, I love the mystery behind this because like, it's wackadoodle. Like all these, 
all these dance sequences, you know, with Alan Cumming. And you're like, you know, this is a Broadway award-winning actor who's playing this bizarre character. And like that dance sequence at the end of the movie is like impeccable. It's like ridiculous. It's like so ridiculous. And yet the three of them, it's just absolute brilliance. Um, But one of my favorite things is when like Lisa Kudrow says, I didn't even know high school was that bad until you said it was so bad. Yeah. And then she's, and I didn't even know we needed to impress anybody. Like we live a great life. And I think, I think we can all learn from that is like, it really is this lens that we put on things. Like are we just being too hard on ourselves <laughs> or are we just like, is it actually okay? Like that wasn't so bad. Yeah. Almost every comedy that uses the slobs versus snobs thing and clueless does it in reverse, right. By having the snobs adopt right. a slob. Right. And then learn from her. But they're always based on the idea that they have to fight, that there needs to be conflict. And right. Romy and Michelle don't do that. The movie doesn't do it, but they personally just don't. It's their philosophy. Yeah. They like things. They are enthusiastic about things. Um, yes. Yeah. The fact that in their final dance sequence, Romy has a little Star Trek insignia on and she's wearing it wrong. It should be on the side instead of the center, but it doesn't matter because it's where she wants it she saw it somewhere and she just adopted it and she took it over yeah. and that's fine. It's part of her thing now. And there is something really wonderful. And uh, yes, it risks being conflict-free as a, as an experience, as a narrative, but it's just, it was so much fun to just bop along with this thing. And I don't know where it's going. It can't possibly be going along any normal structured act thing because none of this makes sense if you're watching it linearly, but then right. they, yeah, as you say, they get to the interpretive dance sequence and you're like, yep. Okay. Of course they Yes, do. of course. And it's not weird. Yeah. No, I know. But you know, it's interesting. You're right. I guess that is, that could be the trap of the film as you know, I'm sure the filmmakers felt, but I mean, the conflict is, is within themselves. Are they going to have to adhere to other people and be what everybody expects of, or their idea of what people expect them to be? Or are they mm -hmm. just going to like be themselves? I mean, they wasted a lot of time. Just, they could have just showed up exactly the way they were, but they went through a whole, <laughs> a whole thing, developing post-it notes drama to get there. But yeah, yeah it's a do, fun ride. We do need to talk about the post-it notes thing, because again, so if funny. you're going to come up with a lie, Oh, it's so good. I think some part of me wants to believe that it's the Michael Nesmith, you know, the Michael Nesmith story. I think his aunt or his mother invented liquid paper uh, and Michael Nesmith from the monkeys. That's oh. his thing. It's all, it's always been there and no one knows what to do with it because, you know, of course, why not? That, that could absolutely be that person. Or um, was it Hedy Lamar who has the patent for Wi-Fi or something like that? I can never oh remember God. this. But yeah, just the, the things, the thing random, that people do. Yeah. Yes. And it's almost believable, right? Except that some part of your brain knows that it isn't. Maybe it's the yuppie commentary or something where there's a tiny little window of time where that would have been a possible lie. Well, and also it's not easily Googleable. Like you can't take your phone out and be like, who invented Post-its? You know, like mm -hmm. we can do now, like you can't get away with lies now. You're like, really? And you just IMDB someone immediately. And you're like, you weren't in that. You know, you just, it's so yeah. easy now. But back in the day, you just told someone something and I'm sure people just believed it. Yeah. And why would you make up that story? Right. Like why it, it has to be that up? just outlandish enough to be bought. Totally. Who would bother to make something like this up? And it's, it's the enthusiasm 
that Michelle has for it. As soon as Mermy comes up with anything, the way that yes. she just adapts, even when, yeah, as, as you were saying, like, even when she says, I didn't realize high school was bad until you just now said it. She just, it's not like she doesn't think, but that she's so happy to go along with things. She's got this natural yeah. enthusiasm. It's like a, like a golden retriever, just like, oh, we're in Completely. the car. I can be in the car. You know, I actually think this is like a slightly too, like a feminist film because it's like, it's not about finding the guy, you know, that's not centered around that. It's mm-hmm. like, it's about a female friendship. And also ultimately, like when they go to clubs, they're like happiest dancing with themselves. And like, you know, it really is, you know, when she says, well, we got to find guys and, and jobs. It's like, well, it's so easy. How, how come we haven't done it? It's like, because <laughs> they didn't need to, they were so happy. They didn't, it's like, if it happened, it happened, but they're not out there trying to like be these people that society tells them to be. They're just like living their best life until all of a sudden there's pressure. I think there's something like, so like female empowering about that. It's like, it's not, you know, it it doesn't fall into any of those traps of, of the, the guys being the thing that saves them and, and all that stuff that we've seen a million times. Yeah. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to come up with some larger concept about the casting because, you know, um, Mira Sorvino just won the Oscar for Mighty Aphrodite. Lisa Kudrow was the breakout initially of, of Friends because, Friends. you know, like she could do literally anything you threw at Any, her. Yeah. And they chose yeah. to do this, which is great. Um, and also yeah. there was, and getting Garofalo was a deal too at the time because that was, she was, I don't think she was a bigger star than in that window between like 94 and 98. Um, and she's you know, like, she's perfect for Heather. She's She's amazing. Yeah. It's that bitterness that comes from experience like it's not affected she really has spent a decade just getting stomped on and it's the same thing in a weird way like she's she's more like Romeo and Michelle than she isn't because she's also in, entirely herself and incapable of faking it but she's turned yeah. it into armor whereas they're just open to whatever else comes along yeah I think she has one of the most poetic lines in the film which is the like I thought I'm paraphrasing but like she says to them, you were just, you were ruining my life in high school, but I had no idea that they were ruining your life. And I hope I ruined someone's life. Like that. It's not, we're, we're just so, when we're young, we're just so in our own bubbles of being tormented, that we can't believe that someone else that we look up to could possibly be tormented by something, you know, like we think they're living. And it was this amazing aha moment that she had however, you know, 10 years after high school of being like, Oh, you were also struggling which is such a great life lesson in general. <laughs> yeah. And it's one that puts the, the movie puts it into the world in a really graceful way, as opposed to, you know, the big breakfast club monologue halfway through where we get to see a bully feel bad about something. No, this is all just about people who didn't listen to each other and there's no, yeah. there's malice, but it's not, I don't know how to put this exactly. It's a really graceful film about forgiveness, right? Like, and yeah. just leaving the past in the past. Yeah, totally. And that everyone's just doing their best to survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, I think the one that makes that literal is, is uh, Gross Point Blank, which is the guy version of this story, because it came yeah. out within six months of Romeo and Michelle. It was also produced oh, really? by, yeah, it also came from Disney. It was like they were having this weird competition in-house to figure out how to tell the story for two different demographics without mm-hmm. realizing that there's one that could work for both, right? Like that's just the targeting that they were doing at the time. But Gross Point Blank does it with violence and psychosis and shootouts. And Romeo and Michelle has a dance thing. And it's not even a contest. They just dance. 
And it's, it's lovely. Yeah. Just, you need a little Cindy Lauper to help move some emotions. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's just what you need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. And, you know, and Alan Cumming, as you pointed out, every one of these people is a, is a heavy hitter in their chosen even field. Even like, yes, even Catherine Mannheim. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, just top to bottom, just, you know, what's a really random thing. I don't know that actress's name who plays Christy, the, the, you know, a, the, the popular girl, but oh, she right. looks, she looks insanely like my mother. Like it's <laughs> crazy. Like if you take my mother at that age and her, it's like they're twins. It's the weirdest coincidence. Oh, wow. That's Julia Campbell. Uh, and she was in oh, yeah. Julia every Campbell. 80s sitcom. Herman's Head. There was an yeah. episode of Seinfeld she's on, the Frogger episode. And uh, yeah. She, I remember she seeing her it. in other things. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it just, I think that also shows like the directing is, even though it's a wackadoo movie, it's like the directing is very in sync with everyone. Like everyone's in the same movie. And that is, to me, a key to really great directing which is when you're doing stuff that is so broad like this, you have such a hesitancy for some actors to be bigger than others and be sort of like wackier and everything is so wacky, but also so grounded. And I think that is sort of a, a real key to this directing and, and producing side of things is like keeping everyone's in the same tone. It's really hard to do that sometimes when you take risks with sort of how big or broad you're going to do your character in your comedy you really have to trust that director's going to like you know connect the dots all around i use this all the time on the on the podcast but edgar wright once said that the trick to making his movies is that you have to imagine that every actor is pulling on a line like a tug of war, but they all have to have exactly the right tension. And that's up to mm. him, but it's also up to them. Like he has to trust them that they, they'll understand the tone he's after and find it. And yeah, again, like this movie shouldn't have worked. It shouldn't it have the should tone that it has. It should not have worked. It should not have worked. But it's so but- much fun. Like you get swept up in it just like everybody else. It's uh, I'm, I'm, Never did see it in a theater again, which was kind of a regret. I'd love to get the chance to play it for people. And and because now, of course, if you announce your screening, Romeo and Michelle, what is it, 24 years later, people will arrive who've, who've yes. lived and breathed this film for their entire adult lives. Yes, yes. And they'll probably wear costumes and it'll get weird. But, but you know, the, <laughs> the experience of it would be a room full of love for it because that's what, like, that's what happens with cult uh, yeah. films. They become beloved. Yeah. And I wonder how many people just found it later, like yourself, you know, you just came to it later. Yeah. I mean, I was so young when I saw it, but I mean, I think it, I think it came out the year I was born, but I, I think I was as young as like 10 when I saw this movie. Um, So it was like very, yeah, it was like a, again, this one clueless, there were like certain films that I sort of like, oh, and of course, we you know when they say if we're not married by the time we're 30, let's marry each other. 30 seemed like a very old person. <laughs> God, I think I was 31. No, I was 29. <laughs> um, but I'm like, I'm old enough that I did the clueless junket. Oh my I was, gosh, it's amazing. On that. Yeah, that was that was really something. Paul Red does actually look exactly the same, which is extremely unnerving. Um, 
but that he, was he like, is aging backwards and i he's i don't understand it yeah. benjamin button <laughs> syndrome but with a pause yeah. button um yeah. benjamin pause button is that a thing it should be yeah well there's, he does it yeah yeah there's a bit in there um but but yeah it's and clueless was another one where people thought it was like i remember people on the junket for clueless worrying that the film would be too smart for people because it was an austin adaptation and so People were asking Amy Heckerling, like, do you think, you know, are people going to get it? And she kept saying, it doesn't matter if you get the Austin references. The structure is great. So, of course, we can make the story work in the present day. That's the beauty of it. I was trying to figure out if there's a way to make that work with Romeo and Michelle. But I think, as yeah, you're right. Google kills it. You can't actually pull off the post-it notes. So you could kind of reference it in passing. But I think that's what makes cult movies really a perfect like actually that a, a cult movie is that it can only exist in its time that it came out mm. right it can only be what it is it's it, it sort of exists in this perfect you know moment in the universe it just gets birthed right at the right time you know yeah yeah that's a really good way to put it no other window would have worked no other window before or after. It was just sort of perfect. And that's when these gems happen. And, you know, that's what makes them so special. Yeah. And, oh, here's the other thing I wanted to ask you. Do you know yeah. this was based on a book? Because I no. only just found out about it this week. I didn't know it was based off a book. Oh, yeah. so they got the book rights. Well, the screenwriter, Robin Schiff, also wrote the novel. It's called Ladies Room. I have never heard of it. There's almost no, I mean, I don't even know if it was actually actually but... i i worked it's so funny i worked with robin um, oh yeah she she wrote a pilot for amazon that i was in and it didn't go it was early early creation of amazon tv mm. um and it was a comedy about a yoga studio and i was like the biggest fan when i met her i was like i cannot believe you wrote that movie like i was like just in complete awe that she that i got to work with her um and then I think I did, oh, I did an indie film with Catherine Mannheim, um, this little, little tiny low budget film called Fort McCoy. And then that guy who plays Billy, I can't remember the actor's name, um, the guy who plays, you know, the popular guy, he did an episode of Nikita and it was like random. He like did a guest spot and he like came on and I was like, my jaw dropped. I was like, <laughs> Billy. <laughs> We took pictures together. It was hysterical. Oh, that's um, cool. Uh, Vincent yeah, Pesca, that Yeah, he did an episode of Nikita one one of our seasons, and it was like oh. so cool. So I've had a few of those moments. But Robin, yeah, she she's a fantastic writer, and I mean, yeah, I hope she writes more little gems like that. Yeah, she's um she's not getting as much produced as I would have hoped. Actually, she's it seems like she's getting she's doing a lot of like pilot season stuff. I suppose that's how you put it. Right. Um, according to this, she and Winnie Holzman are doing stuff for the Writers Guild Foundation. So that alone is oh, great. awesome. Very and, awesome. Uh, did she talk about the film? Did she talk about Romy and Michelle at all? And or like, did you guys get to discuss the legacy? Or is it one of those things where you end up in a room with somebody you really admire, and the last thing you want to do is poke them? Yeah, I think we were just so, so more focusing on the the job at hand. Mm. Um. I think I had hoped if if the show had gone to series that we would have gotten into some good juice, you know? Yeah. I'm always <laughs> I'm always in that situation. Like I constantly run into people who well not run into, but I'm constantly, you know, connecting to people who do the stuff that I grew up loving. And you just, yeah. you know, everybody has that Chris Farley sketch in their head. It's like, you know that thing you did? I love it. Tell me that 
it's good that I love it. I don't want to do that, but I have so many questions. And with, with this, I just, you know, if this was a novel, was the dance scene, the ending, it couldn't have been, you'd have to like, it's such a visual thing. No, I bet, I bet the book was, it's so weird. I had no idea this was a book. Mm -hmm. That's so funny. I bet it was very different. It would have to be right. Like it it would have to be. Yeah. Structurally, it would have to be different. Yeah. And um, maybe I'll read it. <laughs> yeah. If, if anybody can find it, I'm sure you have the connection, but um, let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious. Is it, it does feel like this unicorn, this movie that shouldn't have yeah. happened somehow that got out. Total unicorn. You know, that it escaped the studio, especially because Disney was just, well, they weren't flailing, but they were doing a whole bunch of stuff with Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures that just, but right. every now and then something snuck through. Yeah. And this is well, one think just... about it in today's time. I mean, this movie would never be made now. No, it would be a, like a Netflix series. Someone would try to do a 12 episode run of it leading up yeah. to the reunion. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many of these little, these movies that like were, were box office releases that would never be made now. I mean, it's like the ultimate shame. It's so... I just feel like people would show up if more movies like this were made for theaters. I want to believe that. I, I mean, I really want to believe that. I have watched the mid-range movie disappear because yeah. of, you know, like DVD and image quality got to the point where people c- could convince themselves that they were having just as good an experience with an HDTV. Yeah. And a comedy like this, yeah, it would either it would either make a hundred million dollars or sink like a stone now, just because. It's like the closest thing I can come to is Barb and Star. Yes. Um, which, but that which, was straight to Netflix. Yeah. Oh, was it in the States? Because it was Lionsgate, I thought. Oh, was um, it in theaters? No, because of COVID. It just, there oh, were no theaters. but maybe normally it would have been in theaters. Yeah, it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a summer 2020 release from Lionsgate. And then they ended up, I think right. here it was on, it was on VOD, but in the States, it might've gone straight to Hulu. But there's a uh, there's a movement now. They're actually going to re-release it at the Alamo Drafthouse Theaters and make people come. Oh, that's come. amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And yeah. It's like sometime in the next couple of weeks, they're encouraging. Uh, I just saw something about it on the wires. They're encouraging costumes and, and weird yes. tropical drinks. And that is a perfect example of a film that I liked very much in my living room, but I would have loved it in a theater. Like if you really make that a girl's night out and you have drinks, you know, the, the bar in the theater first and you go out to dinner after, like you really make it an event, like then you laugh your ass off. It's just like, if you're like folding laundry and watching it at the same time, it just doesn't have the same effect. Yeah. You need a room. Like you need a, you need an audience that is into it and you need enthusiasm and yeah, drunk is probably always going to help a film like that. (laughs) But yeah, just, just the experience. And this is what I missed the most about the last year and a half is I can think of a half a dozen, maybe even a dozen movies I've seen that I wish I could have seen with a crowd, whether I liked them or not, just to feel the room, just to see how the thing plays for people. Yeah, completely. I, I, I love that feeling, especially I can't remember when I saw, um, oh, what's that Killian Murphy movie? Um, the Wind that, shake- oh, no, that the wind wind that Shakes the Barley. Wind That Shakes the Barley. I remember being in that theater and there was like an entire like heavy energy. Like people were like connecting to each other in this like deep, intensely emotional way. And I walked out of that theater and I 
like remember looking at people and people were like looking at each other. I mean, this was a, this was at the Lemley theater on sunset in like um, Laurel Canyon or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that one, uh, what was it called? I think it's different now. Um, and it's like, it was just such a collective emotional experience for everyone. Cause it was so heavy and the performances were so incredible. You need sometimes that, you know, you just want to be around people experiencing it at the same time. Yeah. I'm just worried now that I'll overcorrect and kill the first person who puts his phone on, <laughs> which again, they should know better. They should at this point. Yeah. So this is the, the awkward bit. I'm trying to figure out a transition, um, but it's such mm. an, it's such a weird film to ask this about. Is there anything of Romy and Michelle that you've used in your own work? Like I don't see, a lot of Sorvino or Kudrow and Turner and Hooch currently, but I haven't seen the whole series. So there might be something coming. Um, you know what? I think, no, direct, <laughs> like, sure. I do, I do plenty of comedy and, uh, and this film was very uh, much of a, uh, and it made such an impact on me as a young kid. And I started, young. you know, I started acting just a few years later after I saw this film. Um, so, you know, obviously it makes an impact and, and, influences you in some way but I think ultimately like re-watching it as an adult and watching these and, and you know as a, a career actress is like just watching how free their comedy is and I remember making that shift on Turner and Hooch I felt a little bit more like constrained for some reason of like trying to figure out the tone in the very beginning and I feel like collectively as a cast we really just like dove deeper into all of our quirky people we really are. (laughs) Um, I won't speak for anyone else, but for me personally, I was like, as the writing sort of got more for Laura's character and there was more of the storyline, I just sort of felt more free. And I see in Romy and Michelle, this like just being truthful to who they are. And, And I think that's what we're always trying to search for when we're portraying these characters is just like, we're always need to be the most free in ourselves to then bring the character to life. And I I think that that's a reminder to have like all the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, I gotta say my favorite episodes of sitcoms in their first season are usually episodes six and on once the writers figure the actors out and understand what they can be trusted with and how far they can push them and where they can go. And yeah, there's always like, it's hard, it's almost impossible to get something that lands off the jump. Like news radio, I think is the only one I can think of where you see the show in the first episode and it never really changes. It's always there. It just gets bigger, but everything right. else has that learning curve and that moment where, and the, you know, as, as, as you say, the actors are figuring out their characters as much as the writers are in the first few episodes. And then you just see it all come together. Yeah. yeah that's the best. I mean, very rarely are pilots indicative of like what, you know, the show will be. But I I do find, you know, we as Turner and Hooch as a show, I mean, we had the template of the first film to be like, this is going to be a family show. This is going to be a co-viewing show. This is going to be, this is tonally, we're going to have a little bit of everything. We got to have the heart of the dad, but we have to have the funny comedic moments. Um, I think for us as a show, leaning into the comedy has, has definitely been our strong point, you know? Yeah, it's what it wants to be, I think. Like I the, think it's what it wants to be. When you when you talk to people about the original movie, or at least when I have recently, it's like, you did you watch it all the way to the end? Because it's bleak. And I remember just, I, it's another one I saw with an audience that was not prepared. Like when it just- Really? Yeah, I mean, it's obvious what's, yes, of course, but 
people were just like sobbing in the theater, uh, totally blindsided. So I'm not asking you to tell me that I can feel secure about everything on the show, but if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> no dogs will die. That's all that matters. That, that, ha- that helps, right? Yes. But, but perhaps dogs will be injured. That happens too. And it's all make-believe anyway. It's fine. It's perfectly it's fine. It's all make-believe. Yes. This is, yeah, this is how I make it okay in my head. It's like, no, the dog is fine. The dog is at craft services. Everybody's happy. You're just getting a fake bandage. Our, we have five hooches and they are, <laughs> they are, they are so well treated. It's like, they are truly number one on the call sheet. <laughs> it is like, they have full-time care. I mean, it's amazing. I, as an animal lover, I was really a little, I was nervous to be like, oh gosh, like if I don't agree with these practices or if I see them trying to like work these dogs too hard, like I know myself and that's not something I'm going to be comfortable with. Like that's in the back of my head when you sign on to a show that's, you know, so heavily centered around animals. And I mean, that is, was so far from the case. It was like, wait, he did one take, but he has to go take a break. He was panting too hard. He's hot. (laughs) Okay. So what do I just, I, so I'm just gonna, okay. I'm just gonna pretend he's here. You know, like it was very much, they were treated so well, you know? And yeah, I'm actually glad to hear that. I I know it's going to be like any studio shoot's going to be lawyered thoroughly and make sure everybody's safe, but yeah, there's that thing. It's like with children and animals, you're never totally sure they don't know it's not real or that they know it's not acting. Oh no. The dogs fully don't know. It's not real. Like we were told like, we don't slam doors and we don't raise our voice around them. If you ever see anything that's heightened emotionally, the dogs are not there for it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is so cool. It's all sunshine and happiness. And anything you see that's like a dog, like tilting his head, like confused, it's just his take. It's just his coverage with a squeaky toy in the background, like of him reacting to what we're doing. You'll notice you never see him in the wide shot experiencing something because we won't put them through that. I mean, luckily, I think that's a good thing. <laughs> that is, that's great. Yeah. Why would you, it's not necessary. And even, you know, like we had a dog, a pit bull in a car in one scene that was like angrily, like barking at a window at Hooch and mm-hmm. Hooch was supposed to see this. And we didn't even want, or I would say not, it's not like I'm in charge of it, but the creators, like Hooch didn't experience that pit bull attacking, trying to attack him. It was a split screen. They've just actually married, you know, the, the camera trick of, 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 you know, pasting together one shot so that it looks like they're in one shot, but they're not, they never even met that day, you know? Wow. All right. Now I have to go find that scene. Uh, It hasn't aired yet. It hasn't aired yet. Okay. I was trying to think. I haven't seen that. Yeah. No, you'll, you'll see it and then you'll know. (laughs) My thanks to Lindsay Fonseca, who you can see right now in Turner and Hooch on Disney+. Plus. The season finale airs this Wednesday, October 6th. Thanks also to Jamie Lobel and Joelle Onukabiri. They know what they did. You can find Lindsay on Twitter at Lindsay M. Fonseca, all one word. And you can find Romy and Michelle's high school reunion on Blu-ray and DVD from Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment. It's also streaming in 4K on Disney+, Plus, and available to rent and purchase on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days and still trying to figure out how to relaunch the Now Streaming newsletter. We got delayed. We've had some stuff going on. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and wherever you find podcasts. 
Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or this show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Watch movies. Stay safe. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your shot already. I'll see you next time.